Jamie here. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I feel like the stars aligned on this one. So I've been a huge fan of Daily Crunch Snacks for some time now. It's a superfood-infused sprouted nut snack that uses a special soak-sprout dehydrate process that gives them the most amazing crunch. On top of this crunch, their process leaves in vital micronutrients that make them easier to digest than traditional roasted almonds. So of course we reached out to include them in our Off The Gram Live weekend in Nashville. Little did we know that they were in mid-launch of their new Nashville hot variety. This new flavor in the Daily Crunch Snacks family is an ode to the brand's female-founded beginnings in Nashville with a taste that is sassy and spicy, just like the three of us. And like all Daily Crunch Snacks, it's uniquely crunchy, high in protein, fiber, and healthy fat, and has no sugar added. Find them at stores like Amazon, GoPuff, Meyer, Bristol Farms, Thrive Market, and Central Market. Or head over to dailycrunchsnacks.com and use code OFFTHEGRAM for 15% off. Heidi here, here to talk about my absolute cannot live without product, SOS Hydration. Their on-the-go powder packs have all the benefits of an IV hydration drip, conveniently in a take-anywhere-with-you powder form. No IV or needle required. Hydrate better, feel better. Did you know that when you start to feel thirsty, you're already dehydrated? SOS Hydration helps hydrate you three times faster than water alone, helping you perform at your peak every single day. Whether you are dehydrated from a plane, hungover, or feeling brain fog, SOS has got you covered. Plus, SOS is certified organic, contains less sugar than competitors, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives, is keto certified and gluten-free. They also have a kid's line, which my kids are obsessed with. Use discount code OTG25 for 25% off your first order at soshydration.com and start feeling like your best self. I started making the dysmorphic series to really help battle my own demons in regards to my own dysmorphia and kind of try to express the reality in which that I live or perceive myself. And I found that really objectifying my struggle with dysmorphia helped me better understand it. It helped me to put it in a place that was available for analysis, right? Welcome back to an all new season of Off The Gram the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, ladies. Hey, girls. Jamie here. So today's guest is Alex Rudin, a New York City-based multimedia artist and illustrator who founded the creative studio, Rudin Studios, LLC. In her art, Alex comments on the complexities of the human experience through stylized portraiture and anecdotal commentary. Her focus lies in uncovering and expressing the truth of what it is like to live in modern America and creating work that galvanizes action around social and political issues. Honestly, pause this podcast right now and go to, okay, so ready? It's at underscore Alex Rudin on Instagram to see her art for yourself. You won't be sorry. Okay. We're going to wait. We're going to wait. Okay, you're back. You're back. You're back. It's incredible, right? You had to go look at that because to see it is really to understand it. So this year, Alex has partnered with organizations such as Women for Biden-Harris 2020, Women for the Win, Friends Vote Together, 
her bold move, along with numerous other female-led political organizations, in addition to working in the human rights space with Article3.org, the Representation Project, and the Sam and Devorah Foundation for Trans Youth. Alex has been featured in publications such as Grit Daily, The Female Lead, Yahoo, and USA Today, just to name a few. She's also been shown in both solo and group exhibitions in New York, Philadelphia, the Hamptons, and beyond. And girl, I know you've also shown your work in Delaware because you're from there. And girl, I live 15 minutes from Wilmington in Chester County, PA. We got to talk, but we will save that for later. Megan? So Alex is an incredible talent whose work spans so many important topics from racism to mental health to body image. She says, make the work that you want to make. The point of being an artist is to engage in a life of self-expression. We'll get to know Alex today and reveal the often invisible disorder that she's trying to make very visible in her latest series called Dysmorphic 3. Listen to the show if you're already a fan of Alex's art. Maybe you saw her famous Kamala Harris portrait and want to meet the artist. You've heard the term body dysmorphia and are curious to learn more. You'd like some boss babe advice on how to tap into your own creativity. Trigger warning, we will be discussing eating disorders. Welcome, Alex. So this is Jamie here. And before we dive into your incredible artwork, we want to like meet the artist. But I know you're New York City based now, but you're originally from Wilmington, Delaware, right? I was saying this earlier, like, so I, I'm, I live in Chester County. I live 15 minutes from Wilmington. Wow. Cool area. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in Wilmington, Delaware. So I lived there for about 18 years before I went to Parsons here in New York City for art school. Um, and I'm from a pretty typical New York Jewish family. Um, so everyone in my family was born in New York City, except for me. Um, and I went to a Quaker school growing for 14 years. Um, so really there, I learned a lot about um, compassion and equality. And I would say my, my education in regards to my upbringing bringing was really instrumental in regards to what I do now. Um, and I mean, Wilmington, Delaware is a really small town. It's, um, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of small town atmosphere. So I, I was really, I'm a city girl. So I really was longing to come to New York my entire life. And I did that when, when I went to Parsons for school and I haven't left since I've been here for about 10 years now. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Alex, Heidi here. And I wanted to sort of, you sort of blew through the Quaker school for 14 years thing, yeah. which is like, you I just, I know for me personally, I can only speak for myself, but like, I don't associate necessarily artists with Quakers, right? Sure. Like, I feel like they're much more structured. And I mean, I know you mentioned that, you know, they embrace the principles of equality and I'm sure also like tolerance and spirituality. Absolutely. Um, how, how was that education informative of the activists who you have become through your art? Did it affect it? Did it impact it? Absolutely. I think that just conditionally, you know, I was in a place that um, really tried to foster um, creating good people. Um, you know, it wasn't without its challenges, though. As you said, you didn't really think that Quakers are, you know, artists and Quakers are not kind of synonymous in your mind, right? Um, but, and to speak on that, you know, I did have a difficult time. As I said, you know, it's a very small town. I've always been very creatively inclined and I felt um, that the school that I went to really valued sports um, and that kind of competition. I was always very academically inclined, so that was not really an issue for me, but I didn't really fit in there. Um, but I found for me that expressing myself through 
um, any mode of creativity was a great way to kind of combat that feeling of not fitting in, you know, and I also come from a family that's wildly creative. Uh, my grandfather was an illustrator. My mom's a designer. Um, my dad can literally build anything and anything under the sun. Um, my uncle's in the film industry. So I have a lot of that creative background, like just within my family network itself. So I would say that maybe it wasn't necessarily school that kind of pushed me towards that creative outlet, but it was more my family and kind of how they value creativity as um, something great and unique. And also kind of my, my struggle with um, fitting in was it really pushed me towards creativity as um, a mode of expression. And that's really kind of where I found my footing within my art itself um, in regards to mental health work. Um, and then I would say, in regards to the other work that I do, I do a lot of uh, political work, um, work with uh, human rights organizations, uh, nonprofits, a lot of feminist organizations. Um, I would say that a lot of my care for phil uh, philanthropy or just the greater good or helping people who are in need of help comes from my Quaker education. Um, and, you know, when you go to somewhere, you go somewhere for 14 years, you're pretty... Um, I don't want to use this word in any pejorative way, but you're kind of indoctrinated, right? Um, and you really start to absorb a lot of what they teach you. And the tenets of Quakerism are simplicity, peace, equality, you know, all of those things that really speak to activism in itself. So I would say that school, going to a Quaker school for so long, and even being what does going to a Quaker school look like, though, Alex? Like, are you wearing like a funky outfit and like not doing math? Like, what does so, what Quaker school mean? Okay, yeah. So, Quaker, so I went to a school called Friends School. There is like 50 of them in the country. Um, I do, we did not have uniforms. Um, you know, we couldn't wear things with logos on them, you know, kind of typical, like, you know, don't show your knees, like typical school stuff, right? Um, but no, no. In public school, I showed my knees and a lot more if I wanted to. <laughs> public school is a fingertip test, right? Like your fingertips yes. can't be longer than your skirt. That's not your knees. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, yeah. People would be like, you know, sent to the dean or whatever if you had, you know, an outfit. But I would say that it's not this like, you know, I think when people think of Quakerism, they think of like Quaker oats, right? And that kind of like idea of like this very, um, uh, almost I, I don't think uh quakers actually like you're wearing a bonnet or something yeah, like exactly. i feel like like, like a amish a little like, yeah. settlers, you know what i mean like yes. yeah, we don't go to school looking like you know the founders of the united states right? <laughs> yeah, but quaker quaker schools are cool like when i was choosing for my son like where we wanted to send him through the school system i very heavily considered a quaker school because so many of my friends went to quaker schools it's such a good it's such a well here's what i discovered in looking at these schools i was like I think I want to send him there because I want to go there. Like they were, they were, the kids were doing goat yoga and like, you know, just all of this, like, so like I want to do goat yoga, but I don't know if my son wants to do it. So like I ended up sending him to a school that was more like STEM and math, but now listening right. to you, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm like, I wonder, that's a really intriguing well, sensibility. I, I would, I would love to send my children to a Quaker school. And 
like, don't get me wrong. I mean, my school was very focused on an education. I mean, it was one of the best schools in the area and something that, you know, I was actually thinking about leaving um, during high school. As I said, I didn't really fit in. There was not a lot of creativity. Um, and I was thinking about maybe going to an art focused school or something a little bit more along those lines. But we had a program at my school called the International Baccalaureate, the IB program. And there was no other school in um in Delaware that had that, that was a public, a private school. And so I stayed for that reason because my education was really important to me. Um, but Quaker, it really was like a regular school. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything that stuck out as wildly different other than the serious emphasis on like creating quality people who give back to their community and focus on, um, you know, the integrity of, of the students themselves rather than their performance. Um, and, you know, those are the tenets of what, you know, every school is different, right? Maybe they don't follow those guidelines. Maybe maybe in New York City, it's a little bit different than in Wilmington, Delaware. You know, it could be it could be different in that way. But um, I, w- I would love to send my child to a Quaker school. And my parents, you know, along those lines is they, you know, they were looking at a lot of different schools, a lot of different private schools. And they chose to send me, me and my brother both to friend school because they thought that friends would make the best humans, you know, in terms of. So friends made a really talented artistic human. Your grandfather, I would say like, and things I've read in interviews I've listened, it felt like your grandfather was like a really big influence on you. Yeah. Is he what got you to Parsons and what happened to Parsons? Well, so my grandfather, actually, he was a menswear illustrator and he never really got to um, fulfill that passion of his. Um, you know, he had to work and support his family, um, but he was always a really incredible draftsman. Um, he went to the, um, Art Students League up in New York City when he was young. And uh, I just always remember seeing him draw all the time. He was just always doodling. He was, he was a port, he drew portraits all the time, which is funny because I am a portrait illustrator. Um, but that was like our mode of connection. And I learned through my relationship with my grandfather. And you're, you're very much right about that, that he was, um, you know, one of the most significant people in my life to, in general. Um, that you can connect through art in a way that you can't connect um, otherwise. And we kind of had that relationship that was very spiritual uh, that, you know, we didn't really need to talk about things. We could kind of sit next to each other and hold each other's hands and really just feel each other's feelings and just the presence of each other. Very definitely the most spiritual relationship I've ever had. I call him my soulmate, you know, and I, um, him and my grandma both really pushed me towards art. I was really interested in music in school as well. So I was really involved in theater um, and doing a lot of uh, theater outside of school. And that's really where I put a lot of my creative expressions, but I always had this art sense in the back of my mind. I was always drawing, I was always painting. I ended up doing IB art uh, as my major in high school. So I focused on art for two years as like a solid major. And um, I decided very last minute to go to art school for college. So I was actually thinking of going to um, uh, GW for art history. And I decided that like very last day, I'm going to go to New York, I'm going to go to art school. And unfortunately, my grandpa passed a month after I went to college. So he never really got to see any of this come to fruition. But I, I'm a big believer in, in, in the other. You know, there is more out there than just this, you know, plane of existence, right? And I really do believe of, 
that he is like my 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 guide, my spirit guide, and I think that all of the work is guided by him. And for example, I feel like um, so my my grandma ended up passing away this summer as well. Um, and there was a long period of time where I really couldn't make any work. I was really, um, had a lot of artist block and all of a sudden, like, you know, I believe in signs also. So I was, you know, getting signs through music and through. You have to listen to our show with Marianne, the medium. I was waiting to say I, that. Oh my goodness. I love mediums. It- oh my gosh. Okay. You're going to, you're going to die over our show with Marianne, oh, the medium. She happens to be doing a reading with my mom and my sister in my yard right now. So like, I'm loving all of this. That's great. Well, what's synergy, right? <laughs> Right. She um, talked. She talked all about like all listening to the signs and the yeah. guides and like everything you just touched on was the whole episode. It's so. Yeah, it, I believe in that a hundred percent. And you know, I've communicated through to my grandparents through mediums, and it's something that I firmly believe in. And you know, all of a sudden after this six month you know hiatus of not being able to create, like all of a sudden everything broke through, and my work like jumped leaps and bounds. And I truly, truly believe that they were guiding me towards this, that I felt it. You know, when I'm in the studio, I listen to the music that I listened to when I was in the car with my grandparents. I think about them, I channel them, and I I, I believe that they bring me the work. You know, I'm kind of somebody that, I'm very spiritual about my work in itself, and a lot of times I, I'm like, it comes through a higher power, and I'm a vessel, and I get to express the work. And I think they're the ones who who give it to me. So my grandpa is super important to me. And I think that we're still making work together to this day. That's so beautiful. And it's so important to have that kind of faith and that kind of belief system and to be able to channel it and to be able to, you know, obviously very sorry for your losses, but how and how amazing that they're still with you and working with you. It's just, I I think it it can be even more powerful sometimes. Yeah, no, I I'm totally with you. Yeah. So let's go back sort of to you graduated with a minor in fine arts in 2017, right? Here we are in 2022. You had a major in illustration. What happened next? What was your big break? Was it the moment that your Kamala Harris portrait turned into chocolate bars for her campaign team? I mean, Um, minor, minor project. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. That was definitely at like the brink of when things really started to take off for me. So I, after I graduated, um, you know, I was really lucky um, to get uh, a solo exhibition with my thesis, which was actually the first iteration of Dysmorphic, the first, uh, the first time I, I, I broached the subject um, in a, in a series. Um, so I got a solo show for that, um, which was a great stepping stone for me. So I kind of came out of college with already having a, uh, a a show under my belt, a solo exhibition, which is pretty difficult to get when you're young. And then I had three other shows lined up for that year. Um, so I've always been like a very self-driven person. I I always say this to people, like if you go to art school, you have to be self-motivated because nobody's going to give you anything. You have to go make it happen. So I did that. Um, and so I was really kind of trying to break into the gallery world, like the kind of white box, you know, Chelsea gallery idea um, for about a year and a half after I graduated college. And I decided, you know, it's a really elite world. It's all about who you know. It's about power and money and those kinds of dynamics, which, as you probably know, 
to me are not, don't, do not really speak authentically to me and what I do and believe. So I was kind of trying to think, how am I going to get around this in some way, but still be the artist that I want to be? Um, and I also, I am lucky. I, I call it a blessing and a curse in a sense. You know, my work really straddles the world of illustration and fine art. So a lot of a lot of venues that are focused on fine art will kind of look at my work and say, well, this is not really what we do. And a lot of illustration um, opportunities will kind of look at my work. Alex, what the heck does that mean? What's the difference between <laughs> illustration and fine art? It all looks fine to me. <laughs> like, talk to me, girl. Little F. Yeah, exactly. Um, fine art is, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to, delineate it a little bit by concept. Fine art for dummies for me. Yeah, I would say that fine art is something that relies heavily on concept. Um, it can be abstraction um, and it can come in many forms like performance, um, sculpture, painting, uh, you know, there's so many different avenues in fine arts. Illustration is much more old school um, based off of prompts more or less. So for example, in school in illustration, they would say, here is an article, make an illustration about the article and tell the story uh-huh. through the image. Uh-huh. So, a lot- so I'm a magazine editor. I understand that. Yes. Yeah, so most <laughs> illustration is narratively based, right? So, okay. but a, a fine art piece can be more conceptual and more well-rounded in, in its presentation or its message, right? It doesn't have to be you know, stuck into this hole of, of this is a one illustration talking about one article, right? It's much- so I was like, fine art, it means they use really good fine tipped markers and like, or it's like this one type of paint. Yeah, no, it's actually much more broad than illustration, I find. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of people don't know that. So I, I appreciate you actually asking me that. I kind of take that for granted living in, you know, the art world. Um, I try to ask the every woman question because most of the time I don't know the answer. Well, I'm here for the answer. I got it. (laughs) The mom struggle is real. As an on-the-go yogi, working mom, entrepreneur, app creator, writer, and oh, you know, podcaster, a lot of days it's all I can do to keep my head on straight, let alone figure out what needs to go in my bag. Between my yoga gear, tech toys, healthy snacks, and kiddo essentials, it's super important for me to have a cute, stylish bag that enhances my look and my organization. These days, I'm obsessed with toting Bagalini's Fifth Avenue Weekender bag. Why? The Weekender is that perfect in-between bag, great for running around town or short weekend trips getaways, like the one team off the gram just did to Nashville. A padded laptop sleeve keeps your computer secure and a grommeted cord opening means you can charge your phone while you text. RFID protected card slots, a shoe pocket, great for my spin sneaks, and a luggage handle sleeve round out this must-have from Bagalini, a female-founded brand well-loved for their smart and stylish bags for travel and every day. Bagalini helps women feel confident, organized, and prepared for anything, whether it be a trip around the block or around the globe. And I love their commitment to empowering women through organization and thoughtful designs. Bagalini keeps you organized so you can focus on the things that matter most. Head over to Bagalini.com, that's B-A-G-G-A-L-L-I-N-I.com, and use the code OFFTHEGRAM20 for 20% off through June 1st.
choosing a puppy is a huge decision. We knew exactly what breed we wanted. My kids had their heart set on a Bernadoodle puppy swoon, right? But how to find a humane, ethical, reputable breeder? And how do you go about the whole freaking thing? Lucky for us, we were connected with Paul Reed, and the experience of getting our pup has been nothing short of a dream. From the very start, when we were assigned a puppy concierge to walk us through the process, to learning about their no puppy mill pledge, to liaising with our little love's travel concierge, yes, that's a thing, it has been a safe, happy, healthy experience for my family and that of our four-legged friend. The company has been able to match over 4 million families to breeders and puppies, and they're ready to help you too. Want to learn more? Visit PaulRaid.com. That's P-A-W-R-A-D-E.com. Yeah, it's a good question, Megan. And I, I think if you don't mind, I'd like to really talk about your work in with dysmorphic because I, I know that because you talked about fine art being conceptual. And as a concept, I know you've really gone in hard yeah. on body dysmorphic disorder. And I think that's another thing that our listeners might not totally know what it is. Cause like we said earlier in our in your intro, like it's kind of the invisible disease. So like and I know that all of us, by the way, have a lot to chime in about. We've all had personal struggles. We all have different histories with variations of this and, and disordered eating. So I'm curious to hear from you first, what does body dysmorphic disorder look like? What does it mean? And what can you talk about your latest work, Dysmorphic 3? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, dysmorphic uh, dysmorphia can looks like everything and looks like nothing, right? So you can never tell if somebody's struggling with dysmorphia by looking at them. I think people get it confused sometimes with eating disorders, which I also like to kind of put this blanket statement out there that you also can't tell if people are struggling with eating disorders based off what they look like, right? So dysmorphia in its essence is real or perceived flaws within yourself that that affect your daily life and your kind your functioning, right? So I I can talk about my own experience with dysmorphia, but because it's so varied for, you know, depending on the person, I really can't talk about it for somebody else. Um, so for me, I struggle a lot. You know, I have had a long history with an eating disorder as well as body dysmorphia. Um, and they play into each other all the time. So for example, if I if I eat something, I can look in the mirror before and after I eat that thing and I see completely different bodies, right? So it's kind of this idea of your reality in regards to how you look or perceive yourself is not reality. I find it a very destabilizing thing conceptually within itself that you know, I think all the time, if I'm not perceiving something that's reality, then what else is not reality that I'm living? Do you know what I mean? And um, how else, how can I get reality checks? Who can I go to to help me um, process these feelings that, that, that are invisible, are real, but also not real? And it's an interesting dichotomy because, I mean, I think in, in general with mental health, it's kind of the idea, right, of, of, of the invisible. And with my work, um, you know, I started making dysmorphic, uh, the dysmorphic series to really help battle my own demons in regards to my own dysmorphia um, and kind of try to express the reality in which that I live or perceive myself. And I found that really objectifying my struggle with dys with dysmorphia 
helped me better understand it. It helped me to under, to, to put it in a place that was, um, you know, available for analysis, right? So if I can translate what I feel and what I see in my head to a canvas or to a piece of paper, then it then becomes an object. It then becomes something that I can pull apart, that I can tease tease apart and find meaning and growth within itself. So in doing it for myself, I found that it ended up really striking a lot of chords with other people. And, and it's been an amazing way to connect with people who have experienced body dysmorphia um, and to talk, really just have a, a, a mode to talk about dysmorphia because again, people don't know what it is. People don't, it's, it's like one of the, the eating disorders that are, you know, mental health disorders that is really misunderstood and, or I'm not even going to say misunderstood. I think it's just not understood. Um, because if you look at it, you know, I started doing my first dysmorphic series in 2017 when I graduated. It's now 2020. So was that your thesis? Was dysmorphic one the thesis? Yes, that was Got it. Okay. Uh, first thesis. My first show. Um, but really, the research in regards to dysmorphia hasn't changed or there hasn't been anything additional since then. And I find that there is, it's just indicative that, there, I mean, there's a a humongous population of people who struggle with this and there's no visibility, you know, which is ironic. Alex, I can speak to this pretty. So I was hospitalized in my 20, like, I guess my teens um, for a year. And I always referred to body dysmorphia as fish on a plate syndrome, because when I was um, hospitalized with anorexia and bulimia, literally over the course of a year, I missed my junior year of High school, my my best friend killed herself jumping out of a car and route to the hot like trauma, trauma, trauma. Wrote about it in my book, mm. um, but I was part of a study, and they took a bunch of anorexics and they put a piece of fish on a plate and asked us to draw it. Mm. And what we drew was so wildly different from what we saw. Like wow. the fish was overtaking this piece of fish was overtaking the plate in our little anorexic minds. We couldn't see the fish for what it was. Um, and this was like 20 something years ago. And, and in whatever this study was, they called it fish on a plate syndrome. Like anorexics have this wow. crazy skewed view of what they're looking at. Um, and my life hack for that, because I, you know, I worked through therapy and in inpatient hospitalizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and now as a 46 year old woman, my reality check and what keeps me from having those dysmorphic thoughts is by weighing myself. And it wasn't until years into therapy where, where my doctor was like, okay, if you have no grasp on what you're seeing in the mirror, here's a tangible marker. Instead of thinking the scale is this enemy, step on a scale and understand that you ate a piece of pizza and you didn't gain 17 pounds and you don't look or like nothing has changed. And so when I, people always say like, oh, poo poo is scale or say, oh, don't weigh yourself this or that. It was my answer to my fish on a plate syndrome thinking. Uh, and it's something I've, I've kind of kept with me for the past 20 years as I've gotten really strong and really healthy. Um, and love to say to people now as like a 46 year old mother of three, I don't have these struggles. I have my toolkit and I know what I do need to do to feel good and to, to like inhabit my body in a really healthy, positive way. Right. Um, but I, but I always love to put it out there. Like you, to people who are listening and are really stuck in that place of not seeing clearly and, and struggling, like right. I'm really good. I'm in a really, really good place. And I have this toolkit that allows me to like myself 
and it feels pretty awesome. That's amazing. I love hearing that. I think that for me, I have a similar thing. For me, it's not the scale, but it's my clothes. If I Me too, Alex. And right? I was going to bring that up. I'm so yeah. happy you did. Yeah, <laughs> people I, I can don't... obsess over scales, some totally. people, and the clothing. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like, you know, I've, I've come to be able to disregard the number associated with the size of my clothes, right? But if I feel, if I you know, I, I think maybe one morning I wake up and say, oh my God, I think I've gained 15 pounds since last month. And I try on my clothes and they fit exactly the same. I know like for me, that is a, uh, a good enough reality test, right? Because I find with people with dysmorphia, um, or just maybe eating disorders in general, I don't trust other people in regards to what they say about me or, or my appearance or whatever. I believe that, they're lying to me. Um, you know, they want me to be healthy or they want me to be happy with whatever they say. So I really have to rely on my own, you know, as you say, toolbox, right? My own kit of, of skills to, to tolerate the discomfort that I feel, you know, daily, because for me, it's something that I still struggle with. I would say that my, my symptom use is not, um, is nowhere near what it used to be. Um, you know, I also struggled with anorexia for a very long time and, and certain, um, you know, purging and binging behaviors. And I don't really engage in the behaviors anymore, but the, the constant narrative for me is still there. Um, that's something that I deal with daily, you know, but the voices are getting quieter, but the voices are getting quieter because I have my toolbox, you know, I have my DBT skills, you know, I spent a year and a half in DBT therapy, just bulking up my skills. For right? anyone listening who doesn't know what DBT is, can you please yes. explain? DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. So uh, rather than going to something that's more like a cognitive uh, therapy, um, where you talk about your problems, and you come to terms with the reasons why you have those problems or where they stem from, DBT focuses almost uh, entirely on coping mechanisms, how you can tolerate discomfort, rather than trying to understand where the discomfort comes from. So I did both at the same time. Um, you know, I needed there was a period of my life, you know, in college where I needed a lot of help. Um, and my eating disorder got really exacerbated in college. Um, but I did both of them. And I find that to this day, you know, I'm still in, in regular therapy and I go every week and I have been for 14 years. Um, but DBT is something that I can truly say probably saved my life. And I think about and use every day of my life. And I recommend it to everybody who struggles with what to do when they feel that. But is your art, I would think your art is also an incredible form of therapy. Like on your worst days, are you like going, going at it with some fine art? Yeah, absolutely. So I, for me in my DBT skill set is making work, right? So I find, as I said before, making work for me is incredibly cathartic. It's my way of expressing myself. It's my way of processing my own feelings. And I feel incredibly lucky to be able to be somebody who, who can have an emotion and that day have a piece of art that expresses that feeling that can touch somebody else who might be feeling the same thing, but also helped me deal with my own, you know, my own psyche in a sense, right? That like the actual act of making the work and kind of um, 
purging, you know, no pun intended, um, purging these feelings out is, is so gratifying and, and helpful for me that it's my number one go-to. Yeah, absolutely. If I, if I get upset or something went wrong, you know, even in a business, I'll make a piece about it. Like, that's what I do. If I feel something, I make a piece about it. It may not go anywhere. It might go everywhere, but I also feel so lucky that I've managed to create a company and a business and a career that, that supports that that aspect of me, right? That kind of mental health processing and connecting with other people on issues that maybe are invisible or stigmatized or not discussed. And me being able to communicate with these people and, br- and build that bridge of connection is also super thera- therapeutic because it, it ends up becoming more um, community-based than just you know me sitting in my studio making a piece for myself by myself, right? It's incredible. And, and it's a beautiful lesson that your grandfather taught you is that we can communicate almost more through art than we can through words. And I can see that you took that on. So we are so proud of you. We're inspired by you. I know that you're helping a lot of people with this particular body of work. And you really are a story about following your passion. And I think our listeners can get a lot from that too. So thank you so much. Before yes. we end, we always have one quick segment that is called Karma Call. So I make Megan say that, but I'm the resident yogi, so I'll explain <laughs> because she just says it with such great enthusiasm and no one I else could. It. Right? Very exciting. Um, Isn't she great? Um, We love our mics. Um, So karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So we ask every one of our super inspiring guests, that is you, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could take for a short period of time that would yield a large result? Okay. Small action, big result. Could be one of your GBTs. Yeah. Well, I actually, for (laughs) me, my... I believe in, you know, in what you put out is what you get, right? So I believe that doing a small act of kindness for somebody else every day yields amazing results for yourself, you know? And I don't mean that in, in, a, in a selfish way, but I find if I focus on being a compassionate and empathetic person or being a good friend or a good listener to somebody else it invariably makes me feel more confident about who I am and my, my capacities and abilities to, to be um, a good friend, to be supportive, to be a good communicator and have people um, truly, truly think about their feelings in a deeper and more introspective way. Right. So I think that if you're, if you're, if you're nice to somebody else, then you end up becoming nicer to yourself. Can't get better advice than that. Well, thank you so much, my friend. Um, so I did share, I shared your Instagram handle earlier, but I'd love you to share it again. And if you could just tell our listeners where they can go either on the gram or maybe where they could even see your art in person or online, uh, we'd love to share that with our audience. Yeah, absolutely. So my Instagram is uh, at underscore Alex Rudin. Um, my website is alexrudin.com. Um, I do not have a Twitter or TikTok. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. Um, yeah, exactly. I I have no capacity for that. Um, yep. And um, I actually, at the moment, I do not have any current shows up, but I will be having, I have about 
three different shows scheduled for this year so far up until October. So I'm actually partnering with different organizations to do, um, to raise funds for their missions. Um, one of which is a repro rights group, one of which is a mental health group. And the other is uh, an organization that has, supports the homeless population around the country. So um, I have not released any of those details yet, but if you follow me on Instagram, they will all be out there and all of those shows will be, um, you know, viewable and accessible to the public um, when the time comes. Thank you so much. Well, we loved having you here and we love all of you for joining in at home today. Don't forget to subscribe to this show so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to follow us on the gram at Off The Gram Podcast. We'll see you next time.